This week's episode, a discussion about Colbert's collaboration with Critical Role, starts a whole conversation reminiscing about the recent rise of Dungeons and Dragons. All that and more, right now. Hello everybody and welcome to this week's episode of the Eldritch Lawcast, the number one podcast on the Sword Coast as unanimously voted by the Masked Lords. That's right, and it's because I'm here, Ben Byrne, with Dale Kingsmill, James Hake and Sean Merwin. And Sean, I have a question for you. This comes from Gethin who commented uh, on our last podcast or maybe the, the week before that about what kind of adventure you would like to see next from Wizards of the Coast? Is there a particular monster? Is there a particular character uh, that you feel that they haven't explored fully yet within 5th edition or location possibly? I was going to say some sort of apocalyptic world, but I don't want them to do that now because... I thought you were going to say there's too much apocalypse in the real world. <laughs> well, there is that as well. I think I just like to see a good variety of adventures, different kinds, different types, different play styles. So I I want to see all the adventures. It, it's a, a quinky-dinky sort of week for, uh, if I can use that expression, for uh, Gethin's question to come up, given the fact that uh, there was an adventure announced just last week. I feel like the recording of this podcast uh, falls in a weird time because all the big news seems to drop immediately after we finish recording. Uh, but James Hake, <laughs> if you had uh, an adventure that you would love to see come out next, what would it be if you had your dream James Hake adventure? Uh, I would publish it through Ghostfire Gaming. No spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> um, actually, speaking of new news, uh, Journeys Through the Radiant Citadel is something I'm very excited to uh, to learn more about. I, I heard a couple of bits and scraps about it while uh, it was still in development. Sure. And uh, it, it's a project I'm very, very, very far removed from, so I'm just excited. I have a, I have a fanish excitement about this one, which rocks. Something mm. I didn't help write. It's it's kind of great to stop playing inside baseball a little bit and just get some distance. Uh, Dale, what about you? Is there something that you feel? Ha- I mean, I know you don't use pre-written adventures a lot, so maybe this is a, is a is a strange question for you as well in a different way. Yeah, but I mean, in a weird way, that gives me the room to be like, okay, but what adventure would I play if someone just wrote me like the perfect thing, gotcha. handed it to me, here you go, ready to go. And it's, it is hard to kind of figure out because I, I would love to see so many things, but maybe the most specific that would translate into an adventure would be just like a solid murder mystery. Just like- okay. This is this is the premise. This person was murdered, and for whatever reason, you can't just use magic to find the answer. <laughs> you have to actually go and solve a mystery. Uh, that would be really, really cool. I would love to see something like that. That was the the bane of my existence early on was Speak With Dead because when I was a young DM and not quite encyclopedic with the player's uh, handbook and still still aren't really, I was like, oh, there's this person who's been murdered and you've got to figure out how. I think I was inspired. There's a murder mystery in Skyrim that you've got to figure out who, who killed this individual. Mm. And uh, the cleric was just like, okay, cool, I can't speak with Dead. And it was just like a complete like... Ooh, okay. So oh, mysteries, no. yeah. But I mean, I I do think that Speak with Dead. There's there's some fun little like dramatic workarounds in terms of like 
how the dead person answers and, you know, yes. how much you get from them. Maybe you, it just gives you like a bunch of different clues and you don't know which one is like, you know, I feel like there's a lot of wiggle room and fun to be had with Speak With Dead because I don't want to just cut it out because it's so like, oh, I just, as, as a concept, it's so fun to me. The idea of like, I'm going to like get this corpse to speak to me. Mm. Ah, I love that. Well, when when you're dealing with D and D magic, right? Speak with dead is a pretty uh, pretty miraculous sort of thing. It's uh, you know, even though it's a second level spell in D and D, it's the sort of thing that huge fantasy plots are are hinging upon. And when you're doing D and D, I think it's the DM's prerogative to to play with that tone and be like, okay, well, if if you're going to be investigators who can speak with the dead, then the murderer can't just be Joe Chill in an alley shooting mm. Bruce and Martha Wayne. No, they've got to be, uh, they have to be like the cultist of a God of murder. That's a very sort of Baldur's Gate sort of thing. And that means they have all of these sort of divines and trappings to them too, which lets you play with fun curses. Maybe the killer, when they kill, uh, it, it wounds the soul of the person as well. So it doesn't like spoil speak with dead entirely because speak with dead is, very very fun but maybe it imparts a curse like they can't speak the name of the killer or it like keep, prevents them from sharing certain kinds of information lest their soul be rent asunder in the afterlife or something like that there's this great tool that you can use in DD. it's called a mask you can put a mask <laughs> on the killer and even if the person victim knows they won't be able to tell you who exactly it was i don't know some guy he stabbed me like <laughs> yeah, I don't know his name. What are you, what are you asking me for? <laughs> yeah. All my murderers became like strangling victims from behind. It does take some smart DMing. It, it, it helps knowing what the sort of uh, tricks are and knowing which ones you want to plan around in some capacity, but which ones you want to reward if the players are... Because exactly like you said, James, you don't just want to be like, no, that doesn't work. No, that spell doesn't work. No, that doesn't... You know, um, uh, yeah, it'll work. But um, nobody also, killed me. wouldn't it be great to have a pre-written thing that handles all of that for you. Exactly, like an adventure, like or, an adventure. Uh, or a campaign setting, perhaps. Um, the murder provides... mystery campaign setting. <laughs> all murders, all of the time. It's just uh, the town from Murder, She Wrote. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, another... That's a really good point. Murder mysteries are really sort of Rube Goldberg machines. They're really very intricately designed bits of clockwork, um, which means that you know, they're, they're hard enough to write as a novel or as a film because mm. the information has to be doled out to the audience very, very sparingly. Um, they're absolute murder to write for an RPG scenario <laughs> when, you know, choice and freedom is kind of what you want. <laughs> Any encounter you write, even non-murder mystery, are very complex machines that you have to craft together. Uh, so you should always mm -hmm. be thinking that when you create your encounters, whether it's a mystery or not, what information will the characters have? What information will they need by the end of the encounter to continue forward? You know, what clues can you give them in the encounter that will help them in the encounter? All of these things are essential to encounter design of any sort. For anyone who's curious about game design that has to do with mysteries and doling out clues, go check out the gumshoe system. 
Speaking of mysteries, a mystery was revealed last week. Actually, there were several bits of news that dropped last week, uh, not least among them uh, that Ghostfire Gaming's next Kickstarter is a campaign setting uh, called Aurora. Uh, Authored by uh, none other than Mr. Sean Merwin. Sean, you've said on Twitter yeah, a couple of times. Fireworks. This is the adoration <laughs> I miss in my day. <laughs> <laughs> Just this is someone. what you would get if we moved to Australia, Sean. We'd walk through the halls. Uh-huh. People would throw flower petals <laughs> yeah. at our feet. Here comes a game yeah. designer, everyone. Get used to it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, one of the top professions here. Football yeah. player, game designer. That's the yeah. hierarchy of... Uh, of professions. <laughs> Sean, you've uh, mentioned on Twitter in the last week that this has been something that's been scratching around in the back of your mind for a while. It's been a campaign setting that you've wanted to bring forth. What can you tell us about Aurora and what are you excited uh, for the for other people to be able to, to explore within this setting? Yeah, I'm not going to spill too many beans here uh, because it's still being worked on. So everything I say may change. But uh, for the most part, this is going to be, as I mentioned, a post-apocalyptic setting uh, where characters are dealing with the remnants of a major catastrophe. And what I want, I want this to be a post-apocalyptic setting that's full of hope. A lot of post-apocalyptic settings for me are just dark and grim and there's no hope for the future. And I want this one Mm. to... I want there to be that you know, single flower growing through the concrete that uh, the characters have to tread. I want them to feel uh, empowered by the things that have happened rather than a victim of them. Yeah, I, I, I want this to be a different experience, even though post-apocalyptic may be a genre or a type or a trope. I want what this presents to the characters and the dungeon masters to be something fresh that they can play around with. Uh, I was asked if Mm. this is going to be a setting book, an adventure, a player's guide, and the answer is yes. There's going to be a little bit of everything (laughs) for everyone, including what we wanted as well was a brand new way for you to play D&D. It's still going to be 5e, Mm. but there are going to be ways that you can create your character that you have not seen before and Mm. will allow you to really tailor your character while the game master is really allowed to tailor the setting to tell the best kind of story for that uh, DM and for that group. Oh, Sean, you're being so coy. (laughs) (laughs) I will say that there's going to be a heavy draconic presence. Uh, Grim Hollow, we, we downplayed dragons and made it more sort of a lower fantasy setting in that sense. We are going the opposite direction with Aurora. There will be a heavy draconic presence, and dragons will play an important part in not only the backstory of the game, but the forward momentum of the stories in the game. We wanted to do something different with Advantage to give players a choice and to allow them to draw on other sorts of powers rather than going with just strict advantage. And so there is a system yeah. that will be put into place that will allow you to uh, 
handle advantage in ways that may be more tactical, more surprising, more story driven uh, than simply rolling an extra d20. My instinct to interrogate for more information is strong, but... Uh, I mean, you can ask questions. I just don't know whether we can necessarily well, no, answer them of, or not. All of, yeah, all of my questions are like, no, but tell me, what is the new character building thing? <laughs> tell me, I want to know now. Yeah. <laughs> Vague. I think the three things that I'm really excited for with this book is, yeah, the new way to create characters is very cool. It's a very sort of building block way of doing it. Um, very customizable as well. Uh, the new advantage system is very cool from what I've been told about it and very, as Sean said, very story driven. Um, and the, the kind of third uh, aspect of this book that I'm really excited for is the, the exploration um, and the fact that uh, the... The effect that dragons have on the regions, the realms within this setting um, is going to be ratcheted up to 11. So, um, you know, getting through surviving Aurora seems to be the first step. Uh, and but but as Sean said, with that ray of hope on the horizon, like always moving towards an objective. Um, I think that's so important to any kind of apocalyptic mm. setting. I mm. think we talked about this in maybe like episode one of this podcast <laughs> but i just i think it is so important if you're doing a, a setting that is really like heavy you have to give these these bright points otherwise it just ends up being a drag otherwise it ends up just being the last of us part two like <laughs> do you like to court controversy ben <laughs> do you, do you want to get the angry comments and ah yes i too like to live dangerously <laughs> <laughs> So uh, we can't give more information right now. We're really excited. But uh, the 2nd of May 2022 is when the Kickstarter will go live for Aurora. So keep an eye out. Follow the Ghostfire Gaming uh, socials where we'll be giving a little bit more information, teasing out Aurora a little bit more. We'll probably talk about it on the podcast again closer to the Kickstarter. So 2nd of May 2022 is when that Kickstarter goes live. Um, we'll put a link to it down in the show notes so you can go check it out. So Journeys Through the Radiant Citadel is out uh, June 21st, 2022. Um, uh, it looks really exciting, so I can't wait for that to come out. Um, uh, so we only got to wait, what, three more months uh, and it will be here, uh, which is going to be an anthology kind of along the lines of... Um, uh, oh, now I'm blanking. I should have written them down. Candlekeep um, Mysteries. Tales from the Yawning Portal. Candlekeep Mysteries. Candlekeep Mysteries, I think, is the more apt comparison because Candlekeep was an anthology of new adventures, uh, which Radiant Citadel will be, as opposed to an anthology of old adventures updated to 5e, like Yawning Portal or its ilk. I like that you immediately leapt in and gave Ben options. I was ready to let him stew and not have anything to say. <laughs> yeah, great. Uh, I'm glad. I'm glad I see where your loyalty lies, Dale. That uh, Sean and James have my back, and you're just like, yeah, I just leave him floating out in the wind. Uh, good luck to him. Um, no, this is exciting. This is an exciting new adventure. It's an anthology series which is drawing from uh, multiple different cultures, which is really exciting, uh, including India, Iran, Thailand. Um, it's not your sort of typical Tolkien-esque, um, you know, very 
Northwestern European sort of setting, but it is also authored by people who are talking about their own cultures and kind of sharing that with the tabletop role playing community, which is really exciting to to get um, you know authentic content from uh, a wider variety of fantasy settings and mythologies than we've seen before up to this point. So, and also congratulations. Uh, to Justin Arman, who got hired by Wizards of the Coast. I'm Yay! sure that was something that was kind of stewing for a while, but the news broke, I think, the week before last, and then they announced this book, which he's been working on. So, um, this is truly the best of us. They, just, they could hardly um, have found a better person. My goodness, what a hero, except for the puns. The puns are a lot. <laughs> now, hold on. I think that I think that elevates him to, to a new level, Dale. <laughs> I did enjoy, I think it was Anthony Joyce uh, shared a tweet by Justice about sending a message to the players with Counterspell on a uh, Revivify. And I was just like, yes, like Justice uh, <laughs> That seems Justice like a very Ben thing, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but speak, I mean, while uh, these are new adventures, while they are drawing um, on new settings, new ideas, uh, new mythologies, uh, at least to uh, typical D&D content, they are also pulling in monsters uh, from the past, like, and I'm going to pronounce this wrong, an Aurum Vorax, which when I Googled it kind of looks like a sort of displacer beast type creature. It's a honey badger uh, with lots of legs. Yeah, it originally appeared in uh, the first edition adventure, uh, Expedition to Barrier Peaks, the one that happens inside the spaceship. And so, yes, if you want to, if if characters are terrified by the rust monster that will eat their magic weapons and armor, they will be even more terrified of the Orm Vorax, which, of course, stands for Gold Eater, uh, which will destroy their gold. Oh, that I've been over here trying to spell it, but knowing I having the gold connection emphasized helps me with the spelling. Okay, yep. I just thought it was some random letters that somebody threw together once, but there you go. Oh, on the periodic Vorax table. would be the same Latin root as voracious. And on the periodic yeah. table, yep. gold is yeah. A-U. Just Look like at our etymology you learned. I love this. Yes. Look at this. <laughs> <laughs> I just got the pictures. This thing, this thing looks dope. Yeah, it is. I right? love it. <laughs> is it my new favorite D&D monster? Maybe. The titular Radiant Citadel itself kind of acting as a hub uh, where the adventurers can find respite. Um, the way that it was described just going through a couple of articles that were announcing the adventure being that it's less of a less of a seedy dive bar, which is my impression of the Yawning Portal where sort of rumours and mystery and, you know, uh, shady folks move through. Uh, the Radiant Citadel is more a place of respite, like legitimate respite and, and um, you know, coming together um, and, uh, you know, having a, having a bit of downtime because you need that downtime. I have the list right in front of me. If you would like me to read them. Please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The adventures include the following. Salted Legacy, Written in Blood, The Fiend of Hollow Mine, Wages of Vice, Sins of Our Elders, Gold for Fools and Princes, Trail of Destruction, In the Mists of Manavarsha, Between Tangled Roots, Shadow of the Sun, The Night Sees Sucker, Buried Dynasty and Orchids of the Invisible Mountain. Great nice. names. You wanted I 13 adventures? Names. You've got 13 adventures. It also says that there will be a new reward for finishing adventures, referred to as Charm with a capital C. Ooh. So read into that what you will. Uh, is that something <laughs> that is 
mechanically important to characters? Is that something that players can actually spend? Is it, what is it? I, I would love to know, being a game designer, what that might be. And someone who lacks charm. We just don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I love the the variety there seems to be through the adventures. What I was looking for before was there was a small description of Salted Legacy written in blood and Shadow of the Sun. Um, Salted Legacy being a first-level adventure uh, it seems to be very light-hearted, um, uh, uh, whereas written in blood is a third-level adventure, um, which seems to be more, you know, gothic, gothically inspired about hauntings um, in a region uh inspired by the American South. So there well, seems to be- Well, it is written in blood. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. That's That sounds like my kind of adventure uh, in a weird, I don't know why. I don't know whether it's the written or the writing or the blood that uh, <laughs> kind of makes me want to go and uh, explore that adventure. But yeah, lots of variety packed in there as well, uh, which is great with those anthology style books. Um, don't like the last adventure? That's all right. There's a new one coming in the next level. Next bit of news uh, that was also <laughs> announced last week. Uh, a little bit different. It's not an adventure book. Uh, it is uh, Colbert and Critical Role teaming up again uh, for Red Nose Day. It's called Choose Stevens Adventure Brackets Again. Um, uh, and you can uh, donate uh, to the Critical Role Foundation to help make decisions around uh, what Stevens Adventure will be. But the, the difference this time from what I've seen I read this once and then I haven't been able to find it again. Um, so I hope someone here can maybe confirm that instead of just being Stephen and Matt playing, Stephen will actually be with the rest of the Critical Role cast as one among a party of adventurers, which I think is going to be a very uh, fun dynamic, uh, watching him sort of in the mix with uh, the rest of the cast. Are we excited for this? Are we Colbert fans who are excited to see him um have to have to tangle with Sam Regal. Definitely. And I mean, <laughs> the other thing that I'm excited about is that seemingly this is going to be airing on the critical role side of things initially, mm -hmm. which would, to me is exciting just because, you know, as much as I enjoyed, I was delighted by the last little adventure that we had with Matt running for Colbert. We, we ended up uh, with the, you know, the legacy media edit, which is, it's fine. It's nice. But it is always it it to me it loses something uh, that is tied to sort of the live uh, gaming culture that has developed online. Gotcha. Um, so I'm kind of excited to see if we will get something that's a little bit more on the on the critical role side of of things. Maybe they'll also do an edit for for legacy media, but I would love to see a version of it that is a little bit more live stream. Gotcha. I'm sure Stephen would be delighted to hear you referring to his television show as a legacy media. I'm sure he would find <laughs> that so charming. <laughs> He's old hat, you know, yesterday style media, whatever, whatever my, my dad watches. my minor digital media coming through. <laughs> no, but legitimately, I think he would get a kick out of that. <laughs> what I, I mean, I'm enjoying watching. I, I agree with you, Dale. I think last time the other thing was watching it, um, Stephen just seemed like so thrilled you you it, 
to my impression, you could tell he was a dude that loved D&D but hadn't played it in, like, 20 years because he was so thrilled at, like, the novelty of everything. And he was looking at, like, I think Matt had, like, a cave troll uh, statue there or something. He's like, look at this and look at that. And he's just like, when Matt starts describing things, like, go on, tell me more. Um, I'll be interested to see how he goes. Now that he's had, you know, I mean, it was three years ago, but now that he's had his his uh, reintroduction to the hobby uh, and can kind of settle in uh, uh, and... Uh, you know, play out a full session uh, for for our enjoyment. Yes, Stephen. Yes, hey. dance, um, Stephen, dance. <laughs> but it did make me think. Uh, what are some of our favorite critical role guests? Uh, from the past, who do we, who have we really enjoyed? Especially Dale, having watched since the start, the very early days uh, of Critical Role. Who have been some of your favourite guest stars that have come on for for whether it was for a one shot or I know you know guests have stuck around for for several episodes or come back in as recurring yeah. characters. Yeah, well, I mean, for me, I I don't think that I could pick a favourite guest, right? Because for the most part. All the guests are lovely, wonderful people who come in and bring a, a you know, a nice energy to the table. But oh. as far as guest characters go, I got some favorites. <laughs> I got some faves. I am such a huge fan. I loved Cashore in um, in Campaign One, played by Wilfred L. I just there's something about the way he came in and was just like brusque but not mean. Was such a fun character to to throw into the dynamic of everything that was going on and really just like, it felt like every time he showed up, he was throwing kind of a spanner in the works, but in just a fun way, um, which I I really enjoyed a lot. Um, and then also, I mean, Robbie Damon. How could mm. we not mention Robbie Damon's recent stay? I, oh, just, just a delight. Just such a fun, like, personality to put into the mix uh i really i really loved everything about that so those two to me do kind of stand out as favorite guest characters i had two as well dale and one of them is robbie damon as well robbie who he he had the benefit of having a very long tenure as a guest star um compared to the others but he is so sharp and he plays some of my favorite characters as a voice actor too, his, you know, a, a catchy from Persona 5, Hubert from Fire Emblem. There's so many good voices come out of that man. And he like, he really shows that he's got great acting chops when he's given this very, very long form thing to do between EXU straight into campaign three. Uh, it, it's hard to beat Robbie, I think. But someone who does come close is Mika Burton. Um, I adore Mika Burton as Rainey in campaign two. Um, she was one person who I really, really, really hoped would come back for the campaign two finale, but because of, you know, uh, the, the way that COVID that happened, happened mm. yeah. it's tragic. I think all the time about what COVID did to, uh, critical roles, guest star plans for campaign two. I mean, COVID did a lot of worse things. Oh, yeah, for <laughs> sure, <that>. yeah. <laughs> to be fair. I mourn a special. If we narrow our view, yeah. <laughs> um, Here's one no. thing it did that upset me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in a very specific way. Um, no, but like campaign one had such a great finale with a ton of guest stars like Kasha came back and Zara and uh, Archon showed up. And mm. a bunch of cool stuff. And I really would have loved to see that happen for campaign yeah. two as well. Especially because because Rainy is just a, a ray of sunshine, and and 
I know Mika as a cosplayer would have pulled it off so well just in the studio. Mm. I also, Perfect. I mean, how could I forget to mention Ashley Birch as well? Mm. What mm. Is, that? I mean, if we talk about dramatic guest character appearances, <laughs> does it get more dramatic? I mean, spoilers. <laughs> spoilers for campaign two. I feel like this is like one of the only places where I'm like, I really need to spoiler warning this. But Ashley Birch came in. What was her character's name? I don't remember. But Keg, thank you so much. Keg comes in right as one of the main cast's character dies <laughs> and kind of feels responsible for it. Whether they were responsible for it, different question. But, <laughs> you know, it's just such a, like, uh, you're hanging around for a another handful of episodes after this has happened as well. So buckle up. It was just really great. It was really good. <laughs> I mean, at this point, you're just going to give me listing all the critical stars. So, talking about Keg made me think of of uh, Nila and, and Sumali's uh, Furbolg character, who kind of primed the pump for Furbolgs before Caduceus showed up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, you've got us going, Ben. <laughs> We're not going to stop at this rate. Well, it's not a problem <laughs> with that. Pull up a list, and we'll just wax lyrical about each of them. Yeah. <laughs> really? I mean, someone who I really enjoyed because I, I haven't been able to keep up with Critical Role just the hours that it that it goes for week to week. So the guest stars that I really click with are the ones that do come in for like the one shot. They've got maybe a bit of a gimmicky character, like when Chris Perkins came in as Spurt, the Cobalt Inventor. I think he was just using the the stat block or something thing and the the thing that just kills me about that is none of nothing that spurt says has me crack up as much as when matt asks in all honesty does like 26 or 24 whatever the giant roll to hit spurt is and chris perkins just goes yes like he's just like why would you ask like of course it does and then his character just gets smashed into like an icky little goo and he's like all right i'm out done thank you it's just spurt, it is one of the best knee. yeah exactly i feel like has there been a character and this is a genuine question a character that has come in for so short a time and yet had so much of a a cultural impact on critical role in the meantime henry crabgrass no one else <laughs> <laughs> we're back to inside baseball dale i, I yeah, don't I'm think so we, can, we can sum up henry yeah, crabgrass I'm, like this no, it's too much it's too much <laughs> those who know know you get it <laughs> and those who don't will need to watch critical role <laughs> so sean how about uh how about uh <laughs> Adventure design. Uh <laughs> yeah, making making games and stuff. Yeah. No, this is a great segment, know, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite was Xavier Woods. Oh wait, that was that was uh How could you Acquisitions forget? Incorporated. Never mind. <laughs> are you are you a consumer of uh, live plays much, Sean? I know that you're not keeping up with Critical Role week to week, but is there a live play that you are like, yes, this one I can't miss? No. Nope. It's <laughs> cool. not my gig. It's not my gig. If if I'm going to watch people play, it's going to be because they're playtesting and I'm watching yeah, to fair. see if what we're creating is working. Uh, so I don't, I'm not anti-play. I love it. God bless all the people out there who are streaming their fun and helping other people have fun. Uh, it's just not, mm. not my scene at the moment. 
Stephen Colbert's legacy uh, media uh, cut together. Of, well, it's not even the idea of editing it, right? Like, I love edited actual plays, but there is something about editing for television that is so different to editing for new media. Yeah. It is a, a wildly different beast, and it works for television, but it it it's a little uh, jarring when you come in from a sort of new media perspective on something like Critical Role and you get the TV edit. It you can feel it. It's like it's like watching um someone's, you know, compilation of their uh, Among Us game during the height of Among Us at the start of the pandemic, yeah, right? Sure. You you watch these edited things that are they're definitely cut down, but they are, you know, they they maintain this energy um that that we kind of associate with things like streamed gaming. But once you watch, you know, Jimmy Fallon's edit of an Among Us game, it feels entirely different. Um, yeah. And it's not just down to the content, it is down to the um, the format. You see things in the way that online media is created and edited together, where the priorities are different from somebody working on traditional media or legacy media. Um, <laughs> it's a, it's a where- perfectly crumulant <laughs> Yeah, okay. <laughs> fair, fair. We're never going to um, let you live it down, Dale. <laughs> um, you know, where the priorities are different. Because, uh, you know, I mentioned the thing that stood out to me when I watched Colbert and Matt play was Colbert's fascination with just sitting down and playing Dungeons and Dragons. But I think a lot of that went into the way that it was edited was, you know, what somebody who who runs Critical Role or is editing for a live play-like product like Critical Role or, or similar kind of just considers the B-roll while people are getting themselves set up, you know, and then the game is the main uh, attraction, whether it's for Colbert's team, who I assume was in charge of shooting that particular uh, project, they were focusing more on, like, the reactions and the, you know, Colbert's um, uh, sort of interaction rather than what was actually happening within the game itself. They lingered on that long shot of him just marvelling at Matt describing things rather than, editing it to be the two of them together playing a game uh, across a, yeah, a Dungeon Master screen. Yeah, I think part screen. of that is that Colbert's audience are not necessarily people who care about the nitty-gritty of his nerd interests, right? They don't they don't necessarily want to themselves play D&D, but they have this um this fondness for Colbert's sort of geeky delight. Sure. Um, so, so you know, they see him have these little battles of of Tolkien knowledge, and they're like, <laughs> "I don't know about Tolkien, and I don't know what these fantasy words mean, but I'm happy that you're happy." Um, and I think you get an edge of that in the edit because you do want to focus on those elements of like, "Look at how exciting this is." Yeah. You don't need to understand the numbers because you sure. aren't going to play it. So we won't linger on the maths or the dice rolling or any of that stuff. We'll we'll focus on the story and the delight at the story. You know, I right before this second Colbert thing was announced, um, I was chatting with my parents about my job, <laughs> and you know they they have always been you know vaguely nerdy. My dad likes Star Wars. My mom and dad watched Star Trek. Uh, when I was a very young child, I mean, they're not sure. totally out of it, but they aren't like con going nerds. They're not video game playing nerds. They're not yeah. tabletop game playing nerds. Um, my dad uh, doesn't like games more complicated than Scrabble. You, you know, their, their nerddom is different. They both love Colbert. And so, and so I was talking with my dad, telling him about the first Colbert short uh, because the second one hadn't been announced yet. And 
I, I think I very much convinced him to watch it. And I would be very, very interested to see what his reaction would be between the two. If he's watched the first one, I'll be like, well, check out the second one. It's a more accurate sort of portrayal of what playing a D&D game is like because it doesn't just have, you know, it's not a one-on-one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really curious to see what... Uh, <laughs> I'm I'm trying to find a, a, a word for it, you know, a, a normie <laughs> like my father. <laughs> A non-prejudicial. <laughs> How can I say this without sounding mean? Because I mean it with, with a great deal of... Legacy person. <laughs> That's it. It's perfect. <laughs> I'd love to see how a normie affectionate like Corwin Hake would, would, would take a full Stephen Colbert plus Critical Role D&D game. I'm very curious. So if you want to catch uh, Colbert playing D&D with the rest of the Critical Role crew, uh, it will be airing on the Critical Role Twitch channel uh, April 28th. Uh, this year, obviously. And if you want to go and donate, you can go to, let me just double check the website. I think it's Tiltify, T-I-L-T-I-F-Y.com slash at Critical Role slash choose Stephen Colbert's adventure again. That's a long URL, but maybe I'll throw a link down into the show notes. Um, And voting closes April 1st. Uh, So go check it out just gonna ask that that just makes me think like do do any of the rest of us have stories about like trying to engage you know sort of not even non-nerds but non non tabletop rpg friends or family within your interest like not even necessarily making them play but just like having conversations about it or whatever people i mean i got to introduce my um my nephews and one of my nieces to Dungeons and Dragons uh, a couple of months ago. And uh, it's a lot of fun watching, the, you know, watching any new players be like, I'm not sure what I can do. I don't know what the rules are. What am I allowed to do? And then seeing that slow smile come to their face when they realize that they can do, uh, you know, almost anything, literally anything within this game. Uh, they're, they're only bound by their imagination and, of course, moving in some capacity in line with the rules. Um, my youngest nephew was really nervous um, and couldn't name his character. We were like, oh, what's your character's name? He's like, oh, I don't know, you know, just kind of shying away from the question. And so I was just like, very well, you are the nameless gnome because he was playing a gnome and you shall, you shall, you know, everybody knows uh, not what your name is, but they have heard of you by reputation. And good save, DM. Yeah, thanks. Very good. <laughs> Uh, thought thought nothing of it kind of after the fact. And I was like, oh, I'm not sure if Billy really enjoyed it or not or whether the, you know, I'm not sure how much the kids got out of it, but, you know, it was fun enough. And then my sister tells me, you know, two weeks later, she's like, yeah, they've just been calling him the nameless gnome around the house for like <laughs> oh, the so last cute. two weeks. So um, I've definitely had the joy of being able to introduce it to, uh, you know, family members or, or people that aren't uh, inside the hobby into it. The, the shift I saw... When I started doing freelance writing, I was working full-time for a software company, and I would talk with my coworkers, several of whom who were probably, you know, in their mid-twenties, sort of hip marketing-type folks, not to cast aspersions on anyone, but, you know, sort of in, in with what's cool. And so they would say, oh... 
uh, I work from home, so I would go to the office. I'd be there for a week. I'd have dinner with different folks. And be like, oh, what do you do in your free time? And I said, oh, I, I design and develop you know, role-playing games like Dungeons & Dragons. And they would just get this look like, oh, boy. Well, and then, like, <laughs> let's talk about something else. Ten years sure. later, or 15 years later, yeah, don't those, very same, those very same people who now have children who are... 15 years old or so are calling me or emailing me and saying, how, how do I get them involved in this? Now they want them yeah. involved. Now, hey. now it's something that's cool and interactive and fun. And in, you know, so it was, it's amazing. The first time I got that email from one of these folks saying, what do I need to do to get my child into this game? I thought, okay, we've arrived let nerddom rain down upon us all. Uh, <laughs> Vindication! Yeah. So it's it's been nice to see that. Yeah, that's really cool. I like the, the sort of uh, vague sense that it's somewhere along the lines of trying to get your kid into a private school. It's like, what do I need to do? How do I get him into this thing? I mean, it is, you know, it's no secret that D&D has been exploding over the last, uh, you know, kind of, all, you know, almost 10 years now, really, because Critical Role is seven years old, as was celebrated a couple of weeks ago, um, which is kind of crazy at this point. Does it make you feel old, Dale, being that you've uh, you, you watched it from the very first episode and you're like, wow, that was seven years ago? Yeah, it does. Thanks so much for uh, mentioning <laughs> how long it's been. Uh- <laughs> yeah, I realised as I was asking that question, I was like, ah, crap, does abort, abort. Old- Yes. <laughs> Every cell in Dale's body has regenerated since then. <laughs> ah, um, yeah, no, particularly because, you know, I started making videos, what, two years before that? Sure. So that's really weird to me because it feels like I haven't really been on YouTube or in this line of work or in this space um, and community for really that long. But then you take a step back and you go, how is that even possible? Like, it is wild to me that Critical Role is seven years old. That's, mm. it's too many. Mm. It's too many for, for so few stories. And yet at the same time, you actually stop and you look at it and you go, this is a lot. They, mm. they've done a lot of stuff. Um, mm. but, no, it's wild to as well see the um the growth of D and D as a hobby even just since then because I can't imagine what it's like for Sean who's been like involved in the hobby for forever, whereas I'm I'm coming in at the tail end and still seeing the growth right because I I remember D and D coming up more um and kind of being more in the cultural consciousness even before Critical Role started. Sure. But once Critical Role started, it just, you know, I, I don't think that the rise in popularity is attributable only to Critical Role and the success of Critical Role. But I mean, of course, they are Didn't correlative. <laughs> they are correlative at the very least, if not causative. Um, and so you get this, you know, huge ramp up and it's just been wild to see it go because I've never, I've never come in at the start of an edition before. I've come in mm. in the middle or towards the end. So things are already, you've already got, you know, dozens of books by the time I've joined in with stuff. But coming in sort of even just before fifth edition, because, you know, I was aware of it because I was playing Pathfinder, coming in as fifth edition started and watching it go from like three books to however many there are now, you know, like 20 plus is insane. It's insane to see that happen. That's so many things. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, but before that, it was board games. And I remember saying the exact same thing of like, man, board games are having like a real renaissance right now. Huge. And then Which that again, exploded. Yeah. You into- got tabletop with Geek and Sundry as well. Like, right. Yeah. Geek and mm-hmm. Sundry at the time was was a big player in terms of kind of taste making. Mm. Um which is weird to say, but, you know, Tabletop would play a game, a board game, and it would sell out. You could not get a copy of it mm-hmm. because everyone bought it because it was on Tabletop. Yeah, I remember um, watching them play um, uh, Betrayal at House on the Hill and just, like, role play through that game, and I was like, I've got to have this game. Like, I, I I don't even care about, like, winning this game as the betrayer or a survivor or what, but I just want to, like, play as some character um, who's exploring this house and create the story together as you, as you play the game together. Where I was when I grew up, I think I would have been massively into D&D, but I just didn't have access to it. Nobody was talking about it. I wouldn't be surprised if nobody played it uh, at the high school that I was in, at least not at the time that I was there. Me and my friends were into war games, but that was like slightly embarrassing, right? It was like you don't necessarily publicize the fact that you're into war games because it's nerdy and you get made fun of and whatever else it happens to be. Not like mortifyingly so, but just, you know, you keep it on the down low. So I guess the question is like seeing the changing attitudes towards D&D, what has that been like as more and more people uh, show interest in the hobby, want to get involved? How has the public perception of role-playing games and tabletop games kind of changed over the last couple of years? That's what I was going to say. I want to hear from the Americans because there's this extreme sort of back and forth that we don't really, from my perspective at least, we don't seem to have here. No, I mean, I think here you either know what it is and are vaguely interested or you have no idea. I don't think there's as much of that kind of like meteorized, it's embarrassing to play D&D or or you get villainized for playing D&D necessarily. That is so wild because I remember growing up as a kid in the 90s and there would be American shows like, like Dexter's Lab or SpongeBob would have an episode that just kind of very casually threw in a D&D joke. Because it was it was enough of a pop cultural presence that everyone knew about Dungeons and Dragons, and it was a incredibly dweeby thing that no life nerds played, and that was it. Uh, you know, once the Satanic Panic disappeared, it was like, oh, these kids aren't Satanists; they're just losers. <laughs> uh, Why not both? <laughs> And and D was such easy shorthand for loser no life dweeb gotcha. that it, it it was it was it was shorthand that was all it was, um and and so for that to finally change in like 2014, uh, it it's unreal. It's it's like it's like surreal to think about the fact that D and D is is cool. Well, I think the United States, or at least a majority of the United States, has always been conservative, small C conservative, uh, in the sense where change is always questioned. And so, you know, when when I was growing up, I was in a very, I'm in a rural area now. I was in a very rural area then. And it just so happened that some friends of mine had older siblings that played. So therefore, when we were old enough to understand what was happening we were recruited to play because they needed players uh and i was fortunate in the sense that my family wasn't religious to the point where they saw it as something unholy 
they just saw it as something weird. But I was weird anyway, so it, it wasn't it wasn't anything like, that, that was <laughs> beyond what I already was. Yeah, it, and I think there was this there was this draw f- to the of the game to creative types that it took a generation, but those creative types that were drawn to that game were also the same creative types who were creative enough to tell stories and build businesses and think outside the box to become successful enough to then lead the next generation in what their tastes would be, which is why you see so many Hollywood writers and so many directors and so many studio executives and all sorts of folks who were big D&D nerds who are now reaping the benefit of what the game taught them in their lives. Mm. And that's why we're seeing this echo effect almost, I think, of that generation that started the game now in positions where they can continue not just the game itself, but everything that the game was. You know, when um, Chris Perkins regularly did a blog in the fourth edition days, he made one offhanded comment that has stuck with me for a long time. And it's if he didn't become Chris Perkins, the D&D guy, he said basically in no uncertain terms, he would have become Chris Perkins, the uh, the television fantasy drama guy. Right. He, he would have gone on and done something akin to Star Trek The Next Generation or would have tried very, very hard for it because that, that's the only other thing that would have captured him creatively in the way that D&D does is a, serial, a serialized story mm-hmm. for the modern age. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think it's a uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that the rise of D&D in popularity and the rise of sort of prestige television has happened in the same uh, sort of cultural soup pot mm-hmm. um, we as a culture are really primed for this kind of storytelling and and role-playing games have, have done a pretty good job capitalizing on that yeah I uh it's interesting to me my mum sort of about I want to say like five years ago so sort of when I was starting to get into D&D but before I started making D&D stuff for money um I remember mum sort of just offhandedly mentioning, oh yeah, when I was when I was young, my best friend for my birthday gave me Dungeons and Dragons. And this would have been what, probably late 70s, early 80s. Gotcha. So she she was given this really early D thing. And I was like, what did you ever play? And she said, No, I never got to, because she's not good at maths, following her footsteps. I get it. Uh, we don't like numbers, we bounce off them. And so she kind of, you know, went to look at it and just not knowing anyone else who played was this huge barrier to entry. She had the game, but she couldn't play it because she didn't, you don't have that like understanding of how the game works and you can't, you can't really read the rule book for a, for a tabletop RPG the way that you can for a board game. And I, it was so upsetting to me at the time that I heard that. I was, you never got to play and you always wanted to play. No. And I was really pleased to be able to, uh, at some point run for my family and I hope to do it many more times. But, um, but it was so upsetting to me. And it's just, I think that is for me the biggest impact that critical role has had. Uh, on the popularity of this hobby is that you get to, and I think that Tabletop did a really similar thing and other channels like Watch It Played for board games. Um, they show you how to play it. Yeah. You know, you just have to watch a little bit of Critical Role and you see, oh, they roll that dice and 
they add numbers to it and it tells them, you know, like you you get the broad understanding of how the game works, what that core game loop is. Yeah. And it just, it takes away the scariness of it. It takes away the the daunting yeah. task of reading and understanding that rule book. Um, <laughs> and I think that it means that a lot of people who, um, you know, there's that thing of if you can't find a DM to run for you, then you're the DM, um, which wasn't necessarily an option for everybody back in the day. Um, but I think it is much more accessible now to just pick it up and start running. Um, so I don't know. I think that's a nice thing to ruminate on. <laughs> you know, a lot of people come to D&D not for the role playing, but for the numbers and the killing monsters and the getting loot. And that's totally fine. That's, that's you know, part of what the game is about as well. But for me, it was like thinking that it was more like a board game than a role playing game. And I role play like Every, every board game, doesn't matter what it is, if it's Carcassonne where you're literally just putting down tiles, I turn it into a role-playing game. If it's Quilt, uh, there's a Quilt game where you're like sewing a quilt with shapes, role-playing game for me. I was playing The Witcher, that's right, it's time, um, a couple of years ago with my partner and I was like, oh, do you want to play some of this game? It's really great. I think you'll enjoy the story. She's like, yeah, okay. So I sat down and I'm playing through it and she turns to me at one point, she goes, why do you keep grunting? <laughs> And I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, just every couple of minutes you keep going, mm. and I'm like, oh, no, no, no. What I'm doing, I, I was doing it without realizing. What I'm doing is I'm role playing Geralt discovering things. So when I see like the scent lines traveling through the air or when I see footprints on the ground and I'm considering what the situation is here, I just kind of make a Henry Cavill style Geralt like, hmm. And she's like, why are you doing that? I'm like, because I'm Carol. I'm like in the role. Yeah, exactly. So realizing that was what D&D was, that's how deep you could go, um, is what gave me the the access to the game. Um, that's just a delightful story. I, I'm very charmed by that. Ben. That makes me very happy. Thank you. Um, very quickly, speaking of... Uh, thank you. Uh, speaking of nerdy things, uh, David Klein sent us uh, an email and asked about incorporating your other hobbies into D&D and introducing uh, your players to hobbies that they might not necessarily be involved in um, or have an interest in, but you incorporate them into your D&D game. How do you incorporate those hobbies without making your game slightly inaccessible potentially to some people? Uh, the example they used was in the case of Dale being a big fan of Greek mythology. The average person has some idea of Greek myths, but uh, she's not going to expect them to understand in past perhaps knowing Dionysus is the god of revelry and maybe not making it so that they, the players, uh, automatically know about the Bacchus, for instance. I'm not entirely sure that I, um, I think they influence the way that I approach D&D, but I don't think I necessarily like consciously incorporate them. Um, and I think part of that is that I've, I've never, I mean, shocking as it might, may be to hear since I talk so much, uh, but, I, you know, I'm not really interested in educating people about stuff. Like, it doesn't bother me no. that my friends don't understand my hilarious Greek myth jokes when I make them. Um, <laughs> so I just kind of, it, it it comes and it goes as sort of it it naturally would. I don't, I don't know how to explain it really. It's just kind of like, you know, if it's relevant, I'll put it in. And if they don't get it, then that's fine. And, you know, that sort of a thing. And then, I mean, it's tricky because so many of my hobbies just kind of don't connect to D&D &D at all. So Yeah, what, what I find more important than my hobbies as like a game master or designer 
are the players' hobbies. About to say something wise. Because yes, that's that's what you want to tap into, uh, and let them either if it's in the game, let their character be a conduit for that. Or more importantly, if they have hobbies that are outside of sort of more esoteric things, uh, Kim is the cook. Kim, could you please make your famous so-and-so cake and decorate it in the sigil of your adventuring company? Because we're going to enjoy that cake. Uh, Someone who's into woodworking, could you make us all dice rollers or boxes for our dice you know those sorts of things you get to share are more important than what happens at the table itself yeah at the table itself what's important in the game varies but what's important in the game is where the characters are rubbing up against the story and sometimes bringing in those esoteric things actually take away from that rather than add to it uh you know what what a 12th century corset looks like Maybe really you know, super exciting to you, but to keep pushing that stuff in the game may not be adding to the game as much as detracting from the story that everyone's trying to tell together. So you can yeah. obviously add cool things that, that add flavor, but you don't want to detract from what's important to the game with too much flavor. Mm. You're so right. And I didn't even realize it until you mentioned it, but I've got you know players who love music who I've I've gotten on board making uh, character playlists for people. I've gotcha. got people who like making, um, you know, mood boards, and they do mood boards mm-hmm. for each of the characters. I've got people who one of them um, attends sea shanty singing things. I don't know how to explain it. They go, they form a group, and they sing sea shanties. That's the thing. Uh, and her character is a bard, and I was like, you know what? Uh, do you have a sea shanty that'll be relevant to this thing? And you know, do a little ditty in the middle of it. You know, it it is. You're so right. You've always got the wisdom. I call it legacy knowledge. Legacy knowledge. <laughs> legacy knowledge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. On, on top of all that, I, I, one thing that's important to me or, and has been important to me since the beginning is just kind of doing stuff that interests me for my own sake in unobtrusive ways. When I was first starting out DMing, I, uh, one of my biggest hobbies was playing the trombone in school, in wind ensemble and in jazz band. Um, and so I spent a lot of time every single day with the tubes and valves of a big old trombone up on my left shoulder. And I was very interested in the sort of mechanical workings of it. And, uh, even though the actual sort of instrument never became relevant to the the D game i was playing the uh i i incorporated elements of the sort of mechanical pipes and valves and sort of switching uh of passageways that a valve trombone uses to produce sound as part of my dungeon design um and that was really fun for me because it was something i understood at a very sort of intuitive level because i was using the thing all all day mm. and and that just made it a very cool thing for the players to experience because i knew kind of exactly what i was talking about but i didn't make the knowledge too esoteric yeah i think that's the trick is not uh not making it like fundamental to the game that you're trying to run having some sort of inside baseball knowledge uh, my, you're not here to show off exactly yeah yeah 
Or if you are, maybe it's to maybe it's to like that one person at the table who you know is into that thing and they'll get the inside joke, but it's not going to interrupt the flow of the game or it's not going to make the puzzle impassable if not mm-hmm. everybody at the table understands the joke. I mean, I, I've, I've heard of DMs that create puzzles that are based on like Greek mythology or, you know, some other sort of mythology and it's like what did such and such say about or, or knowing... Um, Oh, I'm going to get this wrong. Is it pentic diameter or dia- some sort of iambic pentameter? That, like knowing what that is, was core to being able to solve a puzzle in the game. And it's like if the you- poetic style in which Shakespeare wrote, right? In case uh, you don't know what iambic pentameter. Yeah. If uh, if you didn't know if you didn't know how to kind of use that to complete like a sentence in a in a phrase, then you weren't going to be able to solve the puzzle. And so creating impassable obstacles based on outside hobbies is probably not the best approach. Yeah. But um, you can, but you know what? I, I have done a thing. I've never created obstacles based on outside hobbies, but now that you bring that up, I have created shortcuts in terms of like, uh, I. so for example, I have a, um, a big fae villain uh, who in my setting, if you know a fairy's name, you have power over the fairy, right? Old school. And I have talked about the real world mythological, you know, fairy that this villain is based on. And if my players paid attention <laughs> to that conversation and they remember that name in game, if they remember that fairy's name, I will let them win. I will let them have it. But I know, I know that they weren't listening. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, including like little, like Sean said, little things in there that you know your players like. Speaking of fae and fairies, um, my partner is a big literature nerd. And one thing that I learned from her was that if you eat food within the fairy realm um, in certain mythologies, you're stuck there. You can never leave. And so including- in fact, you could you say know, in most mythologies. That's um, one thing that crosses over. Fun fact. There you go. Persephone. Yeah, she pointed, it's like- it, Thank you. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Spirited Away has that theme in there where the, the parents eat all the food once they've passed over into the fairy world and get turned into pigs. And so I created this whole um, puzzly trap style thing that was based around food and explained it to the other players so that they like understood the mechanics of the of the encounter. They weren't completely in the dark, but she was like, ah, I get where this is from and kind of having that that wink and nudge without it being an obstacle for anybody else um, is maybe the the best way to incorporate certain parts of your hobbies in. Or you just bring a hockey puck and a hockey stick and a mask to the table and you say, all right, guys, roll for initiative. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> and you hit them. <laughs> yeah. We're doing this old style. Why did you go for ice hockey? Ice hockey is so not an Australian sport. <laughs> I don't know why I went for ice hockey. It's the first thing that popped into my head. You bring you bring an Australian rules football and your high socks <laughs> and you come in and you, you handball it across to them and hope they know what to do with it. Um, that is is all we have time for today. If you want to send an email in uh, and have us pontificate over it, uh, you can contact us, podcast at ghostfiregaming.com, and I will grab those emails and read them out uh, without paying any attention to it myself, but hoping it makes sense um, so that we can talk about it. Uh, Or you can leave a comment down below. Uh, I do read all of those, and we try to respond to as many of those as we can. Um, If you're watching this on YouTube, uh, of course, if you're on the audio uh, 
Spotify, iTunes, those sort of places. Make sure to leave a rating if you're on iTunes, subscribe, uh, go ring the town bell uh, and let everybody know that the Eldritch Lawcast has arrived and is here to stay because we will be back next week uh, and we look forward to chatting again then. We will see you next time. <laughs>